drove to church this morning, we're listening to Charlie Daniels, and as you listen to him, you probably heard him say in a sort of 70s country lament, well, the eagle's been flying slow, and the flag's been flying low, and a lot of people saying that America is fixing to fall. But speaking just for me and some people from Tennessee, we got a thing or two to tell you all. This lady may have stumbled, but she ain't never fell. And if the Russians don't believe that, they can all just go away. (laughs) We're going to put her feet back on the paths of righteousness, and then God will bless America again. And you never did think that it ever would happen again in America, did you? You never did think that we'd ever get together again, but we darn sure fooled you. We're walking walking real proud, and we're talking real loud again in America. You never did think that it ever would happen again. I love the CDB, but that ain't a Christian song. Well, maybe it is. But it is interesting, as I am bombarding you with requests for prayer, with calls for commitment to prayer, with sermons on prayer, so much so that you're probably like, yeah, shut up already. If I have gotten you doing that, then I've succeeded. You've at least heard me. But the reason I'm doing it, and the reason I think that in this last sermon on prayer, where the apostle urges the church at Colossae to devote themselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. It begs the question, why does the Bible talk about prayer so much when we've clearly decided that it isn't anything? Intelligent, wealthy, powerful people know good and well that prayer is something that puny little insignificant religious people do off in a corner someplace. It's not something anyone of any importance does at any time. Not people who are walking real loud and talking real proud again. And so I want to reintroduce us to this reality that the Bible has because one of the things that happens is we lose our sense of vocation, which means we lose prayer. And if we lose prayer, we lose our sense of vocation. They're intertwined. And so right now in America, you see a very bizarre phenomenon, but it's happened time and time again where Evangelical Christians have abandoned prayer largely and said, the way you get this country right is you force your power on everybody else. You compromise politically. Sell your soul. Who cares about your witness to the world? And you just force yourself on everybody else. That's the way we'll make America great. But wise people have recognized, no, actually, the way we can be Americans best is by being Christians first. And that's what Paul's asking us to do. He's asking, as we overhear, a church who is part of a new reality, who has been acted on, who is to now exist as a sign of the kingdom of God that is not fictitious. It's not Harry Potter, as wonderful as it is. He believes it's an actuality. He believes the kingdoms of this world, whether it's North Korea or America, whether it's Russia or China, that the kingdoms of this world are eventually going to give way to the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and that that's serious business. 
And so it's very difficult to hear when we have our airwaves and our headspace filled up with discussions about Game of Thrones. And you might have just spent 16 hours yesterday watching God's second most glorious game. You'll have to figure out what the first one is. To imagine, wait, why would we pray? What are we up to? Well, people recognize that there are problems. CDB recognizes there are problems that America's fixing to fall. People recognize that things deteriorate quickly. But the Bible always wants to maintain that there are weapons and resources for us fulfilling our calling as an emblem of God's rule to the world. And one of them is prayer. So the Bible speaks of the early church devoting itself to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. We're told that when Jesus ascended into heaven, the early church was told to wait until they had been clothed with power from on high and that they devoted themselves to prayer, waiting on God to send help from the heavens. And Paul says the same thing, devote yourselves to prayer. He calls us to it because he wants us to be able to fulfill our vocation. You know, Presbyterians, it gets joked about the frozen chosen. We believe in election because we believe the Bible. Uh-huh. But it's true. That's, I mean, you can't read the Bible without believing in election. There's no place in the Bible where election is not talked about all the time. God always picks people out. But he doesn't pick them out and say, you're mine. I choose you because you're choice. You're not the choicest cut of person or meat. (laughs) You're not choice. I pick you because I have intentions for the world and I want to reveal them through you. Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, to the world. They were supposed to look at Israel and say, wow, I've never seen a nation like that. They have the laws of God. They operate in a whole different way. The rich never get so far ahead of the poor that they don't think of them. People are just and kind and righteous. They treat each other well. They're compassionate. That's what's supposed to happen. People were supposed to say, by looking at the way they carried on their commerce and their family life, look at how a people is when they interact with the true God and engage their true destiny. And Paul would say, this is what the church is. You have a vocation. We talked about it some last week. And again this week, we have a vocation as priests. We're a kingdom of priests. This same language was used in Exodus where, as Nathan just read, Moses is interacting with God. After God has just said, demonstrating to us that life is a little more serious than we sometimes think. Get these people out of my sight so that my anger can burn against them. And we're told... That Moses, like a priest, a priest represents God to people, but represents people to God. That Moses stood in front of the angry God, who was angry at their disloyalty. Who was angry at having them stick their middle finger to his face when he'd just shown them incredible largesse. He had rescued them from their groaning slavery. He had brought them out into freedom, and they had suddenly committed adultery on him. And God says, they're not going to be my people anymore. And Moses steps in and has this 
beautiful phrase about what he was doing. Moses sought the favor of the Lord. He sought the favor of the Lord. That's what he was doing. He was seeking the favor of God. He was seeking to change God's mind. He was seeking to coerce God, to persuade him to do what he had already said he would do. To stand in between people who were rightly warranting judgment and to divert it. Something like that is why the Apostle Paul tells us to devote ourselves to prayer. Why James also speaks of prayer. Why prayer is mentioned by Jesus all the time. Because it is a way for priests, which is what we are all now, who represent God to the world. Some people will know nothing about God except how you do business with them. About how your marriage is. How you repent. How you maintain righteousness. How you are generous how you're thoughtful of others, how you treat people who are different than you. We represent God to people. We represent people to God. And so it's a serious business. And so Paul says you need to interact with God about it. You need to devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And if you think about what devotion is, most of you are devoted to things in your lives, sometimes some good things, some not so good things, but you know what it is to be devoted. I think about just this summer, we, I think we had 2,000 baseball games. It's, I might be off by a game or two. But when you're devoted to, say, a sport, then your schedule is altered. Your reality is shaped by it. It absorbs your attention. It engages your heart. And it fills your head space. It's what you think about. It's what you care about. It's how you arrange your time. It's if there's a competition, that thing wins. It's devotion. Hopefully you're doing that in your marriages and in your work and to your Lord. And so Paul says, this is what prayer is. It's so serious. It's so instrumental. It's so vital that the worst thing that could happen is that there would be unoffered prayers. So you need to devote yourself to this practice. You need to alter your schedule to do it. You need to make it a regular practice in your life because otherwise you're not going to fulfill the vocation that God has for you. But with it, oh, there's great joy. That's why he tells us to be watchful and thankful. So I want to tell you a few things about this devotion. As a devotee, if you're devoted to prayer, what, what would it look like? What are some of the details of that as a closing bit on this talk about prayer? Well, the first thing is simply this. If you're going to be devoted to prayer, you have to realize at the outset, and even if you don't totally realize that active as if it's true, that God likes you. That one of the things that Jesus Christ has done has stood perennially in the place of God's anger and has averted it and rendered God, if you want an SAT word, if you want to impress somebody at Scrabble or words with friends, has rendered God propitious towards you, favorable. You smell good to him now. He likes being around you. Moses got up in God's face when God was about to destroy the people, and he said, don't you do it. That's pretty bold. If he didn't think that God liked him. How is he sure that God wasn't going to pulverize him? 
Because he says, you said you know me. You said you love me. I need you, and I need to seek favor for them. Don't you destroy them. Abraham did the same thing for Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely you're not going to wipe away the the righteous with the unrighteous. There's 50 righteous people in there. You won't wipe them away, will you? Surely the judge of all the earth will do what's right. He had this confidence. If you have had the gift of having children or being around children, or even a good friend or or a spouse or something, when you are around someone who has confidence that you like them, they suddenly become unself-watchful. Some of you, I bet, have children who might say 132,000 words a day. Do you have any children who will just, they'll just become chatterboxes like little wind-up toys. They'll just talk your ear off through the grocery store and on the way to school and after school and while you're trying to wash dishes. They'll just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and never once say, I wonder if this is interesting to the person I'm talking to. I wonder, I wonder if I shouldn't be saying this. I wonder if I mean this. I wonder how they think about me. No, because they're secure. That's what you do. So when Paul says, be watchful and thankful, he wants you to be devoted to prayer and count on that God likes you. And secondly, he wants you to watch, but not yourself. This watching doesn't mean watch yourself when you talk to God. In fact, you get permission to forget yourself. The worst kind of prayer is self-conscious prayer. It's self-analyzing prayer where you're saying, Oh, Lord, I love you. I think I love you. Maybe I don't love you. I don't know if I love you. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm deceiving myself. Don't do that. That's crazy stuff. Talk to the God who has turned away his wrath, who has demonstrated his favor. You've got it through Christ. And he has said, I would like to hear from you. And I would like you to count on me. And I would like you to watch and see what I'm going to do. Archbishop William Temple said, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. And you've heard the rabbi who taught his students and said, these practices of grace like prayer, they, they can't force God's hand. These things happen spontaneously like accidents and an answer to prayer and the students said well then why do we work so hard at it if these things are like accidents why do we work so hard at prayer giving ourselves to it spending so much time at it and he said to make ourselves as accident prone as possible we want to put ourselves in the way of watching God's activity. And I guarantee you, those of you who devote yourselves to prayer, you walk out into a world that is differently colored than those who don't. Because you're awake. You see behind facades. You recognize God's activity. You expect God's activity. You don't merely think of your job as a way to make money. It is that, but it's way more than that. You think of it as a chance to serve Christ and to do good into the world, to Spread his kindness. You watch as you pray. You watch for what God might do. You watch for my, what might pop up. A friend the other day, we were praying. We were, we were asking for prayer for a friend. And he said, "And hey, let's keep our eyes open for what outcroppings, what emerges, what emerges while we pray for solutions to his dilemma. This will happen to you if you pray a lot. You'll start thinking of stuff. Stuff will occur to you. 
you've got thorny problems at work and you devote yourself to prayer for them, you'll start finding solutions emerging and you'll go, holy cow, God cares about my work. Little kids will find missing stuffed animals and you'll find ways to generate revenue and you'll find ways to figure out how to parent your kids and talk to your neighbor about Jesus. You devote yourself to prayer. You trust God likes you and you watch with gratitude for what he's going to do. And you notice that you go, wow. And if you believe that he likes you and you believe that there's something to watch and wait for, then one thing you'll do also is you'll argue with him. The old Puritans would say, sue him for his promises. And you see that throughout the Bible's representations of prayers. You have people holding out to God like Moses did in Exodus 32. God, remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You promised that they were going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. How are they going to be numerous if you kill them? And besides, your reputation's at stake. Your poll numbers are going to go down. If you rescue your people and then destroy them, you're going to look cruel. You're going to look mean. You're going to look weak. Don't do it. They talk to God like this. Abraham says the same thing. You're surely not going to destroy a city that might have even ten righteous people in it. The God who only does what's right would never act so unjustly as that. Sweeping away the righteous with the unrighteous. Martin Luther apparently prayed for his sick friend, Philip Melanchthon. And he said, I rubbed God's ear with all his promises that I could remember. And I told him that he needed to heal my friend. And if he didn't, how would I be able to continue to have faith in his promises? See, people who think that God is listening, people who think that God's active, people who think that his promises are something to stand on, they will argue with God when it seems like his promises aren't being kept. Because they can't figure it out. So they'll wrestle with him. They'll be like Epaphras that we just read about in Colossians 4, who's always wrestling with God in prayer, struggling with him in prayer. For you, he says, that you might be mature and assured and standing firm in all the will of God, which speaks to another prayer, struggler, wrestler, Jacob, alone, about to face his brother Esau, and he wrestled, he argued all night with an angel, a messenger from God. And we're told at the end of it, he said, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go. Because he knew that his life depended on the mercies of God. He knew that if God did not act for him, if God did not intervene for him, if God did not change him, if God did not rescue him, he had no hope. And so he held on with all his might and said, I ain't letting go. Until you give me a blessing. His name got changed. That's how we know the people of Israel who wrestled with God and overcame. You'll count on God liking you. You will watch and you'll wait. You'll argue and you'll fight. And you'll be specific. Sometimes as Christians we know we ought to pray. So we 
We bore God and ourselves to death by asking him to bless our car and bless our house and bless my nose and bless my toes. People, sometimes when you pray very general prayers, it is a heart-hedging enterprise. It's a way of saying, we know good and well you're not going to do much, so I don't want to get too specific here. And so that's a reason why many, many prayers over the years have said, get specific with this thing. Paul says... And pray for me too, what? When I speak, that words will be given me. When I speak, when I open my mouth, that I'll proclaim wisely. That doors would be open for me to teach God's revelation to the world. You have not because you ask not. I dare some of you to new and increased specificity. I talked to our staff on Tuesday morning. And I said the same thing to them. We try periodically to we'll pray and we'll be silent and ask the Lord to bring things to us and we will come up with a list, a specific list, an unspiritual, concrete list of stuff that we know good and well that we can't bring about, but Jesus can. And we've seen him answer these things and so we set ourselves to praying for them. And I have found that one of the best emboldening things about prayer is you get yourself some specific prayer goals and badger God about them, plead with him, Wrestle with him, argue with him, count on him liking you, and see when he answers. You'll keep doing it. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. Because he heard my cry for mercy, I'll call on him as long as I live, says the psalmist. Count on God's favor. Watch, but not yourself. Watch for God to work. Argue and fight with God. Get specific and ask for prayer. That's another thing I noticed Paul doing. I notice all the people I know who have very impactful lives for Jesus, no matter if they're a business person or a mom, if they're a minister or a soccer player, they ask people for prayer. And you know, it's, it's scary to ask people for prayer because you know every time someone asks you for prayer, you hate them and hope they die, right? Is that right? Is that the... But why are you so scared to ask somebody to pray for you? When people ask you, you're like, I can't believe you would ask me to pray for you. Wicked person. Usually you think of it as kind of nice. You're glad to know how you can pray for people you like and know and love and want God's influence and action for them. Paul is all the time saying, pray for us. Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words will be given me so I can make known the mysteries of the gospel. He's saying, I have a vocation and I can't be competent for it unless you pray God's competency into me. David says, you train my hands for battle. You need God's help at your work. You need God's help in your work and in your health. You need God's help in your relationships, in your home. Ask people to pray for stuff. I think Luther allegedly at one point when he was struggling with the translation of the German Bible, first person to put the Bible in a mother tongue, I think he wrote to some people, and he said something like, I think... I can tell, I'm having a lot of struggles, so I can tell you're probably not praying for me. That's pretty good. So here's a challenge. Pray for me. I'm asking you right now. I want God to be at work in this. I want us to be a kind of community that really does go out and do our work for Christ's sake. Who are students and athletes and moms and dads and single people For Christ's sake, I want people to see our church and say, wow, how did they get so forgiving? 
How come they're so loving? How come they're so generous? How come they're so filled with praise? How come they're not characterized by virtuosic negativity as John B. McLemore could be said to be? Do you know who that dude is? Never mind. Every positive comment I have offered, John B. McLemore has countered it with his virtuosic negativity. But God's people are people of praise. God's people are people of endurance. God's people are people who have generosity and graciousness of speech, says Paul, toward one another. Make the most of every opportunity. So we need God's involvement. So I will ask you to pray for our church, for me. And you, this week, ask somebody to pray for you. About what? I don't know. What do you need? Ask God to pray for you. That's it. There are some of you here who don't really believe all this stuff. Seems a little crazy. You've been burned. You've had some major prayers not answered or answered no or wait. And that makes you reluctant. I understand that. My professor C. Brown said, non-Christians don't pray because they're afraid God might be there. Christians don't pray because they're afraid he might not be. And some of you have pled and pled and you've cried and you've wept and you've wrestled and, and God didn't say yes. I don't know why that is. But you're still standing and you're still surviving. And that's, that's a lot of what God's grace does. It's it, 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 it alters the world. We pray and it alters the world, but it also alters us. And one of the things that all of you need, whether you believe in them very much or not, is don't wait until you believe to pray. In fact, it works much the other way. You think the people who pray are people who are just like super people, Marvel comic heroes of prayer and belief. But it's really the other way around. I don't ever believe too much at all when I pray. It's when I start praying for a while that I start to imagine and believe that God does stuff. And it's not all that different than being heard by someone who loves you. You feel distant from a friend, from a spouse, from a parent. You haven't talked in a while. And you start to unburden to them. You start to pour out your heart to them. And they hear you. And their hearing convinces you that you're wanted, that you matter, that you're loved. And it's just possible that not only does God want us to be devoted to prayer because he wants to change the world through it, because he wants to help us fulfill our vocation through it, but it might just be individually that he wants you to know that you're listened to and that you're loved. Mary Carr said of this meal we're about to do, The priest says, you are loved. Take that and eat it. And that's what we discover in prayer. And that's what we discover in this meal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.